scripture lesson is from the first epistle of Peter, the second chapter, verses 13 through 19. Our subject, Christian liberty. First Peter 2, 13 through 19. Our subject, Christian liberty. And next week, the other side of the picture, Christian obedience. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 19. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. One of the sad facts is that we often take past victories for granted. This is commonly the surest way to lose those victories. Christian liberty represents one of the great victories of civilization. It is important for us to understand what it means. One of the great landmark statements of church history is chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith of Christian liberty, liberty of conscience. Unfortunately, all too little has been done with regard to the significance of that chapter in world history. Recently, a professor wrote a very important study, which will be mentioned in our next Calcedon Report, precisely on the subject of liberty of conscience, in which he does pay tribute to the central work of the Puritan William Perkins and of the Westminster Confession. Chapter 20 reads, a rather long chapter, but important to read in full. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evils of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and a willing mind, all of which were common also to believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law, to which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. God alone is the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. So that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commandments out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience 
uh, the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Because the powers which God hath ordained and the liberty which Christ hath purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who upon pretense of Christian liberty shall oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it, whether it be civil or ecclesiastical, resist the ordinance of God. And for their publishing of such opinions or maintaining of such practices as are contrary to the light of nature or to the known principles of Christianity, whether concerning faith, worship, or conversation, or to the power of godliness, or such erroneous opinions or practices, as either in their own nature or in the matter of publishing or maintaining them, are destructive to the external peace and order which Christ hath established in the church, they may be lawfully called to account and proceeded against by the censures of the church. This statement has, as we shall see this week and next, tremendous importance in the history of the Western world. Its importance, in fact, cannot be overstated. It has helped reform the whole world. It has helped to make possible the right of the individual as against the power of the state or the church to stand under God in terms of liberty of conscience. Unfortunately, because we no longer have the faith and the conviction which undergirded that confession, we are losing its victory. The modern church and state are hostile to Christian liberty and are working to destroy it. Some years ago in the mid-thirties, as a matter of fact. A young man, now recently retired, whose name is known to some of you, Corey, William, uh, Henry Corey, presented himself before the board of the Presbyterian Church for ordination to go to China as a missionary. It was known that this young man did believe that the boards and agencies of that church were infiltrated with modernists and socialists. And in the course of his examination, which he passed with flying colors on all points of doctrine, his academic credentials were excellent. He was asked whether he would support the boards and agencies of the church. He replied, yes, he would support them insofar as they were true to the Bible, did not compel his conscience in any matter contrary to the word of God. This answer did not please the Presbytery, and he was asked to support the boards regardless of what they did. When he refused to make any such blind promise, they refused him ordination. As a matter of fact, as matters then proceeded, the Presbytery and then the General Assembly wound up declaring that where Scripture was concerned, you could believe as you please. But where the church was concerned, you had to do and to believe what the church directed or else. 
course, is precisely what our Lord said with regard to the Pharisees. They had substituted the commandments of men, their own commandments, for the teachings of God. However, there was no contradiction involved in their attitude. They were fulfilling what our Lord long before had declared, that no man can serve two masters. Either he will love and serve the one or hate the other, or he will hate the one and serve the other. Very clearly today, the churches are requiring increasingly radical and total commitment to their policies and refusing to permit any deviation therein while allowing total latitude where scripture is concerned. It is ironic that just a few years ago, one of the leading modernists in that same church was kicked out. Why? He protested over the plan to raise the church to the ground and rebuild it on the grounds which were true. The old structure represented a very important historical monument. It was a beautiful structure. It had an important part in the history of that state. And it should be retained as some kind of monument. Because he fought them and refused to give in, he was kicked out. The commandments of men as binding the word of God as nothing. If God is our ultimate and absolute authority, then God is the source of our liberty, of our liberty of conscience, of our civil liberty, of our religious liberty, of every kind of liberty. If God is our ultimate authority, then we are free only in so far as God through his word gives us freedom in an area. And we are bound in so far as God binds us. Now this gives us a great deal of assurance because we have an unchanging word of God. It tells us wherein we are free. And it tells us wherein we are bound and we have guidelines which do not change from year to year. We know that we have freedom in terms of the word of God in our homes, in our properties, in our calling, in our conscience. But if the state or if man is our ultimate authority, then we are only free insofar as the state chooses to allow us to be free. And we are bound insofar as the state chooses to bind us. When the state changes the guidelines continually, what freedom do you have? of it very clearly is that you cannot criticize the state. In every country in the world today, the growing implication is that criticism of the state is progressively made more difficult. The freedom of man is more and more restricted. becomes the keeper of our conscience. It becomes our God. Now apart from 
the Old Testament, no country in antiquity had any idea of liberty, of liberty of man apart from the state or in separation from the state. This was unthinkable. I know that many textbooks speak of Greece as having been a place of liberty, Athens in particular, but this is, of course, ridiculous when anyone studies the history of Athens. For one thing, Athens, although a sizable community, had 5,000 free men living as lords of a slave state, so that the majority of the people, the overwhelming majority, were slaves, held under control by a small minority. It is interesting that one of the requirements was that there be no distinguishing garment of a slave because if the slaves ever realized how they were overwhelmingly, many, many, many times over in the majority, in a matter of seconds, they could have taken over Athens. And so they had to be dressed like everyone else. There was no liberty of conscience. see it in every historical incident in the history of Greece. And yet in Israel, when we turn to the scripture, we find over and over again kings, good and bad alike, being corrected in terms of thus death the law. Prophet Nathan confronts David and says, Thou art the man. So that at every point in the history of Israel we find that however wicked the king, they recognize still the voice of the prophet. There was a word that was higher than the word of the king. There was an authority above the authority of men and nations. This is why conflict between Christianity and Rome, between Christ and Caesar, was inescapable. The whole idea of the Roman Empire, like every state in antiquity, was simply that religion is a part of the Department of Public Works of the state. Its purpose is to maintain morale. Every religion can be approved if it applies for a license, otherwise it is illegal. And if it applies for a license, the primary thing is that it recognizes the superiority of the state in the person of Caesar or the emperor to whatever gods they may worship. So if they only offer incense at the statue of the emperor, they are free to go and practice their religion. Because then their Christ or whatever god they may worship is recognized as being subordinate to Caesar. The whole problem in the persecution of the church was not that Rome was unwilling to recognize Christianity, but that Christianity was unwilling to submit to licensing, to acknowledge that Caesar was above Christ. battle did not end when Rome fell or when Constantine before that recognized Christianity, because the church had to wage a long battle for centuries to establish itself as an independent realm under God, to assert the fact that the state was not prior to the church, but that both were alike under God. The third phase of the battle began with the Puritans. William Perkins, the Elizabethan Puritan, developed 
terms of the thinking of John Calvin, a thorough doctrine of the liberty of conscience. Each area of life, a separate law sphere under God, as the ministry of justice, the church as the ministry of grace, the family as God's fear for the life of man, the vocation of man, the economic sphere still is separate and neither under church nor state, the school is still another separate sphere, separate but interdependent. Neither church nor state nor other any other area controlling the various spheres of life. With God's authority limiting all human authority. It was in terms of this faith developed in out of scripture we gained the freedoms we've had in the modern world. But we are now in the fourth faith. As Christian faith has waned, the state has take over, uh, taken over the powers of God in every realm. The issue at stake is authority. If our authority is derived from the state, our only possible view of life is that the state is God walking on earth beside Hegel. Therefore, what the state says is absolute in any area. The state has the right to take life, whether you are innocent or guilty. And of course, the abortion case does establish now the right of the state by legislation at any time to take innocent life. have, therefore, capital punishment now for innocent life at the will of the state. If our authority is man, then we are logically anarchists, and what the individual man does is beyond criticism. Jean-Paul Sartre, as an existentialist, has maintained that there is no difference between a man who is a leader of nations and the man who is an alcoholic. Each is doing his own thing. There is no law beyond the individual to judge the individual. In fact, he goes so far as to say the alcoholic may be the superior man because he is really doing his own thing whereas the leader of nations is looking over his shoulder at what the people want. So he's not entirely doing his own thing and is inferior as a result. He is no longer, he has not been fully liberated. But if our authority is of God, then and then only can we have a society in which there is true liberty. With this in mind now, the historical situation we can see the significance of our text. Now, since we are discussing Christian liberty, perhaps it seems strange that the text begins, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him, God, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. We're talking about Christian liberty. But this is a text about obedience. As a matter of fact, what St. Peter says here is familiar. We get it in Romans 13. We get it in longer and shorter form in most of the epistles. So that some people say, well, the big emphasis, therefore, in the epistles is obey the rulers. Nothing could be further from the truth, and yet 
having at the same time a form of the truth. Why was it necessary for the epistles over and over again to stress, as our text does here, obedience? For the simple reason that because the gospel declared there is a higher authority and a higher law, the law of God, and because what the apostles preached wherever they went, Greece, Rome, Parthia, Egypt, was that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. It had far-reaching implications. Not us, because we have taken the words for granted. When we say Christ, it doesn't mean much. It can be rendered as Jesus Messiah or Jesus Christ, depending on which language we derive the word from, because Messiah and Christ are the identical same words, both the translation of what the scriptures are telling us about Jesus. What does it mean when we say Jesus Christ? Why was that so radical a statement for anyone to make that he believed in Jesus Christ? To say Christ was to say that he was king, absolute law. And when the Christians confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they said Jesus King and God. Savior, because Lord, Kurios, was the article, meant God. Christ meant King, the Anointed One, the Anointed World King. Now consider what that meant. It meant that this man who up until now had looked upon Caesar as his God and King, suddenly had another God and King. And it meant immediately that every official in the Roman Empire was alerted, and we know because almost at once we have a letter from Pliny to the Emperor which has survived. And there is no question that this was one of any number of requests that went out to provincial governors all over the Empire asking about these Christians. What's this new subversive group that has another king and God than Caesar? Give us a report on it. And Pliny filed a report, which we still have a surviving copy of, about these Christians. This subversive group with another king and God. Now, the immediate implication for every person, whether he was a philosopher, an official, or a simple person off the streets who had accepted Christ as king and God, or emperor, world king and God was, I now serve someone else other than Caesar. And so the epistles over and over again stress obedience. Because their whole point is we are not revolutionary. We change the world not by revolution, that changes nothing, but by the regenerating power of God through Christ. Indeed, he is Christ and Lord, King and God. But we obey government. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing he may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. What does that mean? Well, now it should be plain to you. All these people are accusing you of being revolutionists, of being subversive, of refusing to obey any authority except that of your king, of being a nation within a nation, and that was the charge. 
an empire within the state. And we are that. The Christians accepted that. So that the Latin phrase was described empire within an empire. The name for the people of God. But we are to render obedience as unto the Lord. For the Lord's sake, submit yourself to every ordinance of man. For the Lord's sake. The word ordinance is very interesting. It can also be translated as to every creation of man or to every human creation. But the word that is rendered ordinance or creation is in the Greek a word that with this exception is always applied to the work of God. This is the only time when it does not refer to something that God has created. Now, there is a subtle distinction here in the meaning of the word. What St. Peter does not say is submit to every law that men may pass for the Lord's sake, but to submit to every ordinance or order of creation or creation of man. And the implication in terms of the technical use of the word refers to things which yet man has done, man has a part in, but which are also areas of God's ordering. In other words, it refers to the areas of authority such as state, school, vocation, family, areas which are God-given areas of life, but which are still areas that man has shaped. So we are to be obedient in these areas for the Lord's sake. Because God has a purpose for these things, and we are not to destroy these orders or ordinances or areas of creation, but to work within them obediently, recognizing God's purpose for them, and that through regeneration we have been changed, and through regeneration other men are to be changed, and then the world is transformed. With well-doing, this is the will of God. And Peter goes on to say that freedom is not to be used as a cloak of maliciousness, that is, a curtain for vice, the servants of God. For this is, the 19th verse, thankworthy. This is a mark of grace. The word thankworthy can also be rendered great, literally. This is grace. If a man for conscience toward God and your grief, suffering, wrongfully. Therefore, honor the king. Honor Caesar. But, this word that is used very important word to show respect for, which should have pleased, of course, any government official who read these documents that these subversives were passing around, is also used in the same verse, honor all men. In other words, we as Christians are not destroyers. We do not use our liberty as a curtain for vice, as a means of killing, of destroying, of breaking down law and order. We honor the king, which is what is required. And we give the same honor to all men in their just and legitimate authority, dignity, property, 
possession. We expect the same kind of liberty in us. Thus we have here a very remarkable statement. A doctrine of obedience because there is a doctrine of liberty. Men are not under men, but under God. But we honor men as a light under God, and God is their judge. And God is their executioner of these deeds, not we. Obedience, in other words, for the Lord's sake. Because both our liberty and the requirements that we obey come from God. But we are also, by the same token, required to obey God rather than men in critical areas where men require us to sin. We cannot obey them. Christian liberty, therefore, is basic to any culture. If it perishes, slavery returns. And the return of slavery all over the world in our time is precisely because the doctrine of Christian liberty has been forgotten as men have lost faith. Liberty will return as the faith returns. And because God is lost, we know what the future shall be. He shall prevail. And the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy grace and mercy hath called us to be thy people and hast established us in thy liberty, we thank thee, our Father, that thou art and in this confidence we move today and tomorrow, mindful that whatever man may plan, thou art he who dost order and govern in and through all things. Make us ever bold and confident in thy service, and bless us unto victory. In Jesus' name, amen. We have time for just a very few questions. Yes. Or else. 
were duty-bound under God to rebel when they were ordered to commit sin to prove that they had no Christian scruples. On the other hand, where the state becomes oppressive and unjust and uh, overtaxes us or gives us injustice in its uh, court cases and legislation, in such cases we do suffer. But in such cases we are not to take lawless means, that's the point, but to take it patiently this is acceptable or this is great with God. Yes. Um, in verse 14 where it says, uh, as well, verse 14, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, and uh, under governors and under them that sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. I've heard some people say that, uh, you know, if you have someone in authority and they don't punish Yes. Now, the state is required by God to be a ministry of justice. And the problem is, what happens when a state becomes a very evil state as the Soviet Empire definitely gives us evidences of many states being? Well, very definitely, what we have to say is that the experience, even within the Soviet bloc, where we have in Soviet Union, until Red China came along, the most depraved state in history, the greatest mass murderer of men. No one in antiquity ever killed more innocent men than the Soviet Union has killed. And that's what you have to recognize is this, that even with that kind of evil there directed against Christians and against certain classes of people, middle class, upper class, the experience has been that without some kind of justice, the state collapses. So that it has become imperative for the Soviet Union, at one and the same time that it is perpetrating all this injustice, to make sure that you have some measure of peace and security in spite of the fact that all is prevailing. In other words, they have to take strong measures against thieves. They have to take strong measures against alcoholics the peace in the apartment building. It was very interesting. There was a study recently here in this country made primarily with reference to New York and one or two major eastern cities. And the study was made by men who were definitely neither Christian nor conservative. But the interesting thing they said was that Urban life reaches the point of breakdown and collapse. Productivity, everything, declines. When people are no longer safe on their own street or in their own home, when they feel uneasy. And he said, as if that uneasiness about living on your own premises or on your own street or being away from your home, what will you find when you come home, begins to increase everything in the culture begins to decline. That the one thing that people cannot take is feeling insecure in that respect. And so they felt that one of the most urgent problems today was to promote that kind of thing. Of course, they never used the dirty words law and order because these were not conservatives, but that's what they were saying. Now, this was the critical problem in some of the cities already, reaching the danger point. And so they felt they had to give major attention to this. Well, this same problem has confronted and has become a problem in the Soviet Union, and they're desperately concerned to remedy it. 
This is why, in the last year, they virtually shut down all bars from the Soviet Union. They limited the amount of liquor you could get. They're cracking down rather brutally on uh, sneak thieves and uh, young hoodlums, of which they have a lot. Why? Because production is collapsing. You've got to maintain law and order to a degree or your society collapses utterly. And so the Soviet Union, who couldn't care less about the welfare of the common man, has a problem because if they don't have security in their homes, they're cramped in these apartments in small spaces, and if they're hallways in these apartments, they're not safe. Or drunks make all kinds of rackets so that a worker cannot sleep. Production collapses. And their production rate per man hours is declining. So believe me, law and order has become a major passion with them. Let's crack down on these people. Let's have some law and order. So the demand for law and order is not just by conservatives in the United States. It's by the government now in the Soviet Union, and it's also on the part of the liberal sociologists who recognize what it does in some of the big cities in the East. In other words, for its own survival, the state ultimately has to say, we cannot allow law and order to go below a certain level, because, as Scripture says, they are for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. If you destroy that, the culture collapses. This is why, you see, Rome fell. Now, this is one of the very interesting things about the fall of Rome. Long before Rome fell, the Roman government had left Rome. And it left Rome because it was no longer safe the hands of the Roman mob, the welfare recipients that it had created. And so the Roman government transferred to Milan, and then it transferred to various other capitals, and it finally wound up at Ravenna, a small town, when Rome fell. And because life had deteriorated to that point in the big city, Rome didn't fall because of battle. It fell because no longer was there anyone who felt it was worth defending. And so handfuls of tribes that could have been defeated by any Roman legionary just wandered in and took the city, took the entire empire. Nobody felt it was worth defending. They no longer had law and order in any community to the point where since the state no longer existed to provide the basic function of the state, people didn't bother to defend it. So there was no battle that you can point to and say, here, the Roman armies lost. William Carroll Barth, the historian, says that tens of millions, as against, at most, a few ten thousand, the barbarians in little bands and no one to defend the tens of millions. No one felt there was anything worth defending. That's what happened. For its own survival, there's a point beyond which a state cannot go without committing suicide. This is the way life is. So God says that this is their function. They're going to maintain it to some degree. Now, there was a book written not too long ago by someone on, uh, as a dissertation, on the Moscow court. And uh, it was very interesting. The uh, young graduate student who got his PhD as a result of that has gone back and done further work. He started as quite an admirer of the Soviet Union, but now they've kicked him out and if he ever returns, he goes into a slave camp. It was just found recently. Yes? Uh, what is the case of Daniel and the Lord uh, illustrates what the case of the king? Because um, Daniel really loved his favorite of the king, but there was a point here when he 
Catholic Church. Yeah. But, uh, you see, this is the way it is. Even now, today, the courts of Moscow are loaded with these cases. Law and order cases. And the judges are told to crack down. Well, we're really past time. Just is there is a quick... Well, you see, uh, the whole purpose of Calvin and Geneva, that's a big question. Uh, but in my politics of guilt and pity, I have a chapter on Calvin and Geneva that goes into some of these questions. Yes. But basically, you see, the whole point there was there was a society that was in collapse. And they called in Calvin as a kind of social planner and engineer to chart some kind of course to recover social order because Geneva was an important commercial center and was collapsed, confronting them. They were not going to be able to function. So let's call in somebody who can provide some law and order. They didn't agree with Calvin. They didn't like what he was suggesting. They never made him a citizen of Geneva until they knew he was dying for sure. And then they gave him a citizenship. And uh, But the whole point was, much as we dislike what this man represents, it's the only way we're going to get any kind of law and order so that we can function. We have built up, a, we have a great deal of investment, we're a powerful commercial center, and yet we're going to lose everything because of total breakdown. Uh, let's bow our heads now for benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and all.